welcome back to another podcast episode of Max Musings, where I discuss my love of writing. The podcast is usually divided into three parts, an interview with another writer, a discussion of my writing routine, and a reading from one of my short stories. The podcast is hosted on WCTV.org in Wilmington, Massachusetts and is about 20 minutes in length with a new episode each month. In this episode, I will vary a little from the regular format and discuss a podcast program which occurred at WCTV and then do a reading from one of my short stories. Stay tuned. Be right back. I attended a podcast meetup last week at WCTV. The purpose of the meetup was to share podcast info with other podcasters. It was well attended with 10 participants sharing their experiences about podcasting. The attendees were Lisa, Scott, Mark, Jane, Haley, Hope, Brad, Paul, and Jen. Some of the podcasters were just starting a podcast and others had been doing one for some time now. The meetup was organized by Lisa Kapala and Scott Curlin from WCTV. Each of the participants were introduced and they all had a chance to share their experiences about podcasting. Lisa passed out some information that listed the scope of the meet and where to get additional info online. In fact, you can get a lot of info and tutorials on YouTube, Facebook, and podcasting.com. It was generally emphasized by everyone that to podcast, all you need is a good microphone and headset, recording and editing software like Audacity, and a place to upload your podcast like a website or a host such as Podbean, iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I described my podcast called Max Musings, which generally uh, has three parts, an interview with another writer, a description of my writing routine, and a reading from one of my short stories. I do my recording mostly at the recording studios of WCTV and edit the program using Audacity software, which is a free download on the web. I also do some editing and recording at home in a quiet place. After recording the main topic of the podcast, I add an intro and an outro and some background music and sometimes I even add sound effects to give life to my story. For instance, I will use a shotgun sound or a cat meowing or children laughing. These sound effects can be found free on the web or at a paid service like audioblocks.com. The hardest part of podcasting is the editing. This requires that you listen to your recording over and over again to eliminate any problems like long dead space or very loud noises or background noise like a fan motor and to make sure the music doesn't interfere with the audio. The podcast should not be too long or too short about 20 to 90 minutes in is average, and it should be a pleasant experience. Normally, 
people listen to a podcast while commuting to work or to school, while riding in a bus or a train or a car. Some of the other participants in the podcast meetup described their podcasts or favorites. Lisa Kapala at Digital Divide on WCDV sits down with Wilmington Memorial Library Technology librarian Brad McKenna to talk about tech-related issues, from the history of certain devices to the buying guides for consumers. Jen Turney at How to Make a Memory on WCTV is a podcast about the items we make for one another and how they impact our relationships. Jen chats with guests who share their creative endeavors and why the act of making is so important to them. Mark Ryan at Mark's Musings on WCTV is an author and storyteller and reads chapters from his books, interviews fellow writers, and talks about his writing process. Jane Ferreira at North Nurse on WCTV is a new podcast from the North Intermediate Nurse Jane Ferreira. Each episode details another way you can keep yourself in good health and physically fit. Hope Shevchik at Matter of Laugh on iTunes and WCTV invites you to join comic conversations on everyday activities and discuss the good, the bad, and the unusual experiences of the average person. Each episode features Defending the Impossible with Dan, where he takes an unpopular opinion and tries to convince you otherwise. Scott Curlin at Writer's Bagel Basket on SoundCloud discusses those terrible movie flops and why people still talk about how terrible they were, but also why they enjoyed the comic relief. He sometimes shares his hosting with wife Haley and Father John. Other podcasts suggested by guests were The Thrilling Adventure Hour from Scott, Sawbones from Jen, TED Talks from Mark, and The Way I Heard It with Mike Rowe from Paul. You can find these all on the web by Googling their names. If you are interested in podcasting, contact either Lisa or Scott at wctv.org. You can also browse the web for related information. I found some great tutorials on YouTube. One is called How to Start a Podcast in 2018 by Pat Flynn. You can listen to the whole program and then download a pamphlet and read it at your leisure. It's full of great suggestions. It's called The Podcaster's Cheat Sheet, written by Pat Flynn. Well, that's it for podcasting description. Next up, I will be doing a reading from one of my short stories, The Secret Piano. It's available on Amazon.com slash author slash Mark Ryan Books. You can also get more info about me and my writing at my website, MarkRyanBooks.com. Get a copy of the book in paperback or ebook format and read along with me. 
Stay tuned. Be right back. Next is a reading from one of my short stories, The Secret Piano by Mark Ryan, and it's available on Amazon.com. This is an adventure of the Romeo Gang series. Chapter 1. The Canal in My Backyard. It was late August and I was harvesting the last of the garden vegetables. Although I did a good crops, the harvest was minimal and probably due to my sporadic watering schedule. Since I was away most of the summer at my camp in New Hampshire, I frequently let the natural rain do the garden watering. Bent over, I was on my hands and knees pulling out some of the dead tomato plants when a loud voice boomed. How is it going, Mako? I'm startled easily and jumped while turning my head to see the, the imagined doom. However, it was only Alice from the house next door. I responded with a friendly quip. I've seen better garden days. I think my tomatoes and zucchini got hit with that mildew blight again this year. I thought you treated the plants last year with a mix of soapy water and baking soda, said Alice. I was away when it first appeared this year and I missed catching it early. Growing a garden is like taking care of a baby. You have to keep a constant watch for all the ailments like chewing bugs, mildew, animals, and just the right amount of water. However, I did get a few extra baskets of mixed vegetables that I was able to give away. Besides harvesting some crops for my own family, I always grow a few extra rows of crops to give away to friends and to the local food pantry. Even in this middle-class community, there are those in need. With the terrible economy, high unemployment, and more home foreclosures, there seems to be no end in sight. Sometimes people have fallen into such deep hole that it seems impossible to climb out. I continued, not to change the subject, but how is your roof repair coming? Alice's slate roof had been leaking in her attic and she had several roofing companies give her estimates making repairs. She then settled on one man who was local but could only do the job on weekends. He was semi-retired but had the best experience record and had good recommendations. Alice replied with exasperation that he would probably start next week. I then asked politely, if you have a few spare slates, I would like to use them to paint on with some of my artwork. Alice answered with a smile, you can have as many as you need. Alice lived next door in an old field house that was built in the early 1800s. It had some, some interior updating the outside still had the same charming and rustic appearance as in earlier days. Previously, I had painted a sign for Alice that hung on a tree in the front yard that said, Fieldstone Inn. Although it was primarily built as a summer house for one of the Boston's aristocrats in the 1800s, it later became a country inn for the passengers traveling the Middlesex Canal. In its heyday, the canal was a busy man-made waterway 
that stretched 27 miles from the Charles River near Boston, Massachusetts to the Merrimack River near Lowell. It was a marvelous engineering feat for its day and took 10 years to complete. The locals called it the Incredible Ditch. Since I wanted to paint on the slates with some colorful landscapes showing the use of the Middlesex Canal and its towboats, I began doing some research on the local canal history and life along its length. As I began looking, the internet turned out to be a great source of info as well as the town library and the local historical societies. Some of my teacher friends also gave me tons of info. From my research, I discovered that the canal, which used to run right through my backyard, was completed in 1803 and was used to bring passengers and goods from Lowell to Boston on floating barges. The canal trip was faster and more tranquil than the traveling in a horse-drawn wagon using the old dirt roads filled with loose rocks, mud, and ruts. As I closed my eyes, I could imagine seeing the barges as long as 75 feet floating by, loaded with textiles, farm goods, passengers, to be transported back and forth along the canal, making several stops along the way. In my imagination, I saw some Lowell-bound passengers get off the floating barge and walk up my garden path toward the Fieldstone Inn to seek boarding for the night. The old Fieldstone house had been in Alice's family for 200 years and was originally owned by Alice's great-great-grandfather, Daniel Eames, and his wife, Abigail. I also imagined that Abigail would then cook a great New England meal of wild turkey with vegetables and cornbread. After dinner, Daniel would play some music on the old harpsichord and entertain the guests until bedtime. I could hear the music rising up the stone chimney along with puffs of white smoke from the warm roaring fireplace. Alice still has the old antique harpsichord tucked away in the basement of her Fieldstone house. Although the trip by barge along the Middlesex Canal was faster, it could still take more than a day to complete the journey, depending on the canal traffic and the stops along the way. The barge could only move as fast as the oxen or horses pulling it as they walked along the adjacent towpath at a speedy pace of three to four miles per hour. At that rate, the trip would take about nine hours if it were open water all the way. However, the canal had to be raised and lowered over several obstacles as it meandered across rivers, swamps, and roads. This was accomplished with the construction of 20 locks, 7 aqueducts, and 50 bridges. The water for the canal was supplied by the Concord River, which was 107 feet above the tide at Boston and 25 feet above the Merrimack River. Some of the wooden locks were over 600 feet in length to accommodate long barges, but also logs that were floated by draft 
attached end to end in bands. The locks were then closed by watertight gates and the water level was raised or lowered. This could take several hours for the entire locking process. Now imagine repeating the same process through 20 locks along the entire canal. In addition, there were aqueducts, large wooden troughs built high above the ground to traverse obstacles below. The Shawsheen River Aqueduct in Wilmington was built 30 feet above the Shawsheen River, where its fieldstone support pillars can still be seen today off Route 129 on the Wilmington and Billerica Town Line. Along with the floating barges, bands of log rafts harvested in the woods north of Lowell were floated on the canal to supply the timber needed during the and after the Civil War for building and ship construction near Boston. Such timber was used in Medford, Massachusetts to build over 400 sailing ships which traveled in and out of Boston Harbor. Besides building ships, Medford was also known for making clay bricks which it sold as a sturdy material for building houses and factories. Bricks were shipped on the canal to Lowell to construct all the mill buildings there. In addition, huge granite blocks were quarried in Chelmsford and shipped on the canal to Boston. The granite blocks were then finished at the state prison in Charlestown and later used to build the large buildings in Boston, like the Bullfinch at the Mass General Hospital. The Fieldstone Inn in Wilmington was also a stop for travelers on the Underground Railroad. Evidently, Daniel Eames was an abolitionist who believed in the freedom of all men and women, no matter the color of their skin or religious beliefs. As black slaves escaped the plantations in the southern states, they traveled north in search of freedom and the help of people that were more sympathetic to their cause. Along the way, the slaves were given food and shelter before moving on for a safe haven in Canada. During their journey, they stayed in the homes of abolitionists who hid them in underground secret rooms or root cellars. Some slaves and their families would stay longer depending on the weather conditions and their health. During these stays, the stronger members would help out doing chores around the house and property. Ever watchful that traveling bounty hunters would discover them. Well, that's it for this episode. Come back next month to WCTV.org and Max Musings. In the meantime, send me an email at mail at MacRyanBooks.com. Bye-bye.